0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 296, Assessing Craig's Trinity Monotheism with Dale Glover. This and the next episode of the Trinities Podcast consists of my conversation with an apologist in Toronto named Dale Glover. This was originally a single long episode on his Real Seeker Podcasts, and I'll put a link to that in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. If you've listened to the Trinities Podcast for very long, then one thing that you've learned is that there isn't really one theology of the Trinity. What there is, is a set of standard language that dates back to about 381, and then people are kind of on their own to figure out what that language means and how you get a coherent picture of God out of that. And you'll probably also know, if you're a regular listener, that Recent Christian philosophers, also called analytic theologians, have been very creative in coming up with an interpretation of these claims that the one God is one usia with three hypostases in a way that is self consistent and maybe even has some motivation outside the realm of theology. They're trying to show how it could possibly be coherent. But also, we'd like more than that, right? We'd like it not just to be possibly coherent, but we'd like something that can actually be believed and which is actually plausibly true if you accept Scripture and maybe other parts of Christian tradition. Now, what a lot of apologists do respecting the Trinity is pretty intellectually shallow, What they'll often do is throw a handful of traditional proof texts at you and suggest that there's some deduction of the Trinity from those texts. They're often very sloppy about that. And they typically underestimate how hard it is to get from the Bible to a theology on which God is three persons in some sense. For more details, check out Trinity's podcast 260 called How to Argue that the Bible is Trinitarian. Beyond just usually a pretty shallow appeal to proof texts and a poorly sketched out argument, what they'll typically do philosophically is what I call the standard opening move. They say, hey, we're not saying that God is one person and three persons. We're not saying that God is one essence and also three essences. Those would be crazy, self-contradictory, incoherent claims. We are saying that God is three persons, but God is one essence. So there, you can't show that the Trinity has any incoherence problems. Well, all these Christian philosophers constructing Trinity theories, they know that this standard opening move doesn't really get one very far. The reason I mention a typical apologetics approach to the Trinity is because what Dr. William Lane Craig does is quite different. He does, in some places in his, I guess, Sunday school lectures, try to deduce a Trinity theory from the Bible. I'm not going to talk about that in these episodes. And he does want to show that the resulting theory is not incoherent, that it seems like a set of claims that could all simultaneously be true. But what he does is he provides a model for what could be going on with the Trinity, He gives you kind of a fairly systematic, a fairly complete way to parse that traditional Trinity language into an actual theology, into an actual theory. This theory, I believe, was first put forward in his co-authored book with J.P. Moreland called Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, which first came out in 2003. There's also an updated edition available of it. And it's a very interesting, ambitious book. It has a lot more uh, hardcore philosophy in it than a typical apologetics book would. And because of Craig's stature as a leading evangelical apologist in our day, a lot of young evangelicals who are trying to have a reasonable faith and think through their commitments carefully and have a worldview that can be presented to the world as something that's worthy of belief, a lot of them will read this book philosophical foundations for a christian worldview and some of them will say hey what william lane craig calls trinity monotheism that kind of makes sense to me it's better than saying it's just a mystery maybe it makes more sense than other attempts maybe they think it steers a correct course in between tritheism and modalism So for someone who's interested in apologetics, this is one of the main things, if they're really serious, they'll encounter when it comes to interpreting this traditional Trinitarian language. Our friend Dale Glover from Toronto, who I'm conversing with in this episode, he's a young apologist and he finds this theory pretty plausible. And so he invited me to come on his podcast and discuss it. I've discussed this in print. I'll put a link or two on the blog post for this episode, and I make a few of the same points there. Although some of what I say I think depends on a book chapter in a big book, which I can't seem to finish, uh, which covers different Trinity theories, and I have a chapter devoted to this. I've given it a lot of thought, and as you might have guessed, I'm not convinced. I think it has some pretty bad problems, although I do have some positive things to say about it as well. So without further ado, here's the first half of my discussion with Dale Glover on his Real Seeker podcast.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today I have a special treat for you guys. I'm joined by uh, an esteemed professor, uh, Dr. Dale Tuggy. Uh, Welcome to the show there, Dale.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I am an ex-professor, however, but I was for 18 years.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, nonetheless, you're still an esteemed guest on the show there. Um, I know you've come uh, highly recommended to me from a couple of my listeners, uh, so I'll just name drop them. D- David Kemble Cook, who sort of made the the initial contact for me, and also Arthur Jeffries, the the Catholic, is a, a fan of your, your work on the Trinity's podcast. But uh, yeah, I think before you say anything about today's topic, why don't we get to know you? Why, why don't you introduce us as to who you are? you know, give us a a sense of your faith journey and that sort of thing.
1: Sure. I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, and I grew up in a a good evangelical home. I was born again and baptized when I was almost eight years old. Growing up, my family went to exactly two different churches. One was independent charismatic and one was very anti-charismatic. It was kind of related to uh, Dallas Seminary a little bit. There were some people in common there. And so I just had kind of just standard American evangelical views about the Trinity, for instance. And honestly, it didn't really come up very much. Only in refuting the cult's context did it come up. But I bought into the, um, the view that, look, you can very easily deduce the Trinity from the Bible. And these cults, you know, they, they just don't believe the Bible or they refuse to believe things they can't fully explain. And if they would just but submit to Scripture, they would see that all this is very obvious but still, I hadn't really thought about it very much. I started thinking about this subject when I was in my PhD program for philosophy. So I went to Biola University, the evangelical university in Southern California, got a degree in philosophy there, loved it, had a great time, got a two-year master's at the Claremont Graduate University in California. And then I went to Brown University for my PhD in philosophy, had a great time there as well. And uh, when I was there, I read a couple of interesting books that really got me thinking. One was Richard Swinburne's book called The Christian God, where he tries to make sense out of the creedal tradition. And he comes up with something that a lot of people would say is really tritheism. But that's another conversation. And then in the bowels of the Brown University Library, I found what I now consider to be a lost classic, which was Samuel Clark's book called The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, And that really got me thinking, and I I think he decisively shows that in the New Testament, the one true God is the Father, not the Trinity. But still, I didn't really know what I thought about it. When I was a young professor around the year 2000, I became aware that different Christian analytic theologians, people like Brian Leftow and William Lane Craig and Richard Swinburne, they were trying to get in there and show how the Trinity was coherent And not just that it's not contradictory, but show that, you know, it's plausible given Christian assumptions and, uh, you know, kind of makes sense in a way, not that they could explain everything. And I started to realize that really what there is in mainstream tradition is required language, and then you're just kind of on your own to make sense of that language. And so that's why you have these leading Christian intellectuals coming up with these incompatible theories about what this language means. And so I tried on all of these theories. I wanted one of them to be true. I was essentially engaging in defensive apologetics, like, hey, this this has to make sense, right? Scripture obviously teaches this. Scripture is inspired and true, so it must make sense. Uh, there must be a good way to defend this and present it intelligibly. But then once I realized that the Bible doesn't talk about a trinity, but it says that the one true God is the Father— And I realized eventually that that's incompatible with the one true God being the Trinity. And so as the 2000s went along, eventually I came out, you know, hey, sorry, I don't think that the Bible is Trinitarian in what it teaches. And uh, that got me blackballed to some extent. But um, that's what I've published on is kind of dueling Trinity theories, uh, because there's so many ways you can understand this language about one God and three persons and three persons sharing one essence. Again, you come up with these incompatible theories that just logically couldn't all be true. So, bottom line, you know, I've always been an evangelical. I value the Bible. When Bible clashes with Catholic traditions, I say the Bible has to win because I think God revealed as much as needed to be revealed to Jesus and the apostles. So, I'm not a Trinitarian because I see New Testament teaching as incompatible with it.
0: Welcome to the show, and uh, bad on me, I was a bad host there, I, f- I forgot to say what the topic is for today. So we're going to be discussing the Trinity, and specifically, uh, uh, my guest Dale, Dale uh, T, he wanted to focus on the model that I think works, is a, is a coherent model, that's the Trinity monotheism model. Before we get into to that, I, I did just want to ask, so, so I get from your opening statement, you're a, a unit, what's called a Unitarian uh, Christian. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, do you mind, you've kind of explained how you how you got there and that sort of thing, but I, I'm just sort of curious, without going into too much detail, do you think that the Unitarian concept of God is essential to being a Christian? Like, a, are Trinitarians going to hell in your view, or do you have a wider, does your views of Christianity proper, so to speak, include Trinitarians?
1: That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. No, I don't think that having these precise theologies can be necessary uh, to being saved. I think that what you have to believe to be saved is very minimal. It's basically what you see preached in Acts. The thing is, you can mix that together with all kinds of other traditions, some of which maybe don't fit it, but you know, thank God he's merciful enough to admit people with beliefs that don't really go together well, because if he wasn't like that, we'd all probably be in trouble. So to me, if you accept the basics, again, you know, basically what you see in the Apostles Creed, you know, Jesus is God's Christ. He died uh, for our sins and was raised by God and exalted. And that if we will uh, confess him as, as Lord, that is confess him as the Lord Messiah, we can be forgiven and born again. I think that's what's required. You know, it's what evangelicals tell little kids that come down to be saved at a camp meeting or something. They don't inform them about the Trinity and the two natures of Christ uh, or that you got to stay away from those dastardly oneness guys. I mean, I'm not anti-intellectual. I'm as intellectual as you could possibly be, but I don't think those things are necessary for being received into God's family in Christ. They just can't be because a kid of seven can make the deal, right? And again, he's not taught these things. So no, I don't think Trinitarians are going to hell or not Christians. I just think that they have beliefs that need further reforming. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's that is something uh, when when I was doing my research and listening to sort of debates, I, I did think that's an interesting point that you bring up. for For those of us who who do think that the Trinity, some kind of trinitarian model, is essential to Christianity, how often does that come up when we're giving the good news to to people and that sort of thing? And it often doesn't. So that was something that caused me to sort of think, like, should we be, be doing that as well? And, and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think that's a good point that
1: you raised there. It goes beyond that, Dale, for Bible oriented evangelicals. You know, if you're not Reformed or Anglican or Catholic or Orthodox, you don't stand up in church and recite, you know, the Athanasian Creed or the Nicene Creed. And really, honestly, the Trinity functionally just doesn't matter in the lives of evangelicals who are Bible-oriented because it's not in the Bible, right? When you read the Bible, the one true God is the Father and Jesus is somebody else. Maybe he's divine in some sense, but we're kind of afraid to go there most of the time. So, yeah, functionally, there are biblical Unitarians like me who just get along in Bible-oriented evangelical churches and the reason they can sort of do that is most of the time it doesn't come up and most of the time they don't really even presuppose it in what they're doing and saying Not the deity yet. of christ now that's another thing that's to them fundamental and that tends to sort of drive us crazy a little bit you know you start off praying to god the father and then you thank god for dying for us you just confuse god and the son of god that happens all the time in evangelical churches.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's a fascinating discussion getting into the the Bible. Um, But as you you said, we can save that for another debate because that's a topic all in and of itself kind of thing. But in looking at the Trinity from the philosophical perspective, so I know that you've written the article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, for example, on the Trinity, and uh, I'll include that in the links for the audience. But Before we get into discussing my specific model, I I take what's called the Trinity monotheism model. Would would you mind maybe taking some time to give us a lay of the land? What what are some of the various models that that are out there, and, and what do you make of those?
1: Well, in the field in the last 20 or 30 years, it's become standard to divide approaches to the Trinity into Latin and social approaches or to Western and Eastern approaches. I don't think that that's terribly helpful and some patristic scholars have argued that eh, really the Westerners and the Easterners are in many cases saying the same things in different language. The way I divide the theories is uh, three self theories, one self theories and Mysterians. If you're a Trinitarian, you have to say that there are three quote persons in God and whatever you want to mean by person, I'll let you have that. That's let's just say person is a technical term okay for trinitarian theology and it's just defined how the theory wants to define it okay but i think that all human beings have a concept of a self the concept of a self is basically a thing like a lasting real substantial object that's the subject of consciousness and that has will and knowledge and can enter into interpersonal relationships so human beings are we all think ourselves uh buddhists famously deny that there are any selves right that shows they have the concept though when they do that some hindus and some buddhists think there's only one self which is like the ultimate thing but anyway we all have this concept of selves you could say full-blooded persons if you want that's kind of kind of means the same thing not human persons but again just intelligent subject intelligent agent so in some trinity theories even though we're talking about three quote persons they're really actually understood to just be one self there and the two most famous theologians in the 20th century Karl Barth and Karl Rahner seem to think of the trinity precisely this way in fact both of them suggest that eh, persons that's misleading we probably shouldn't talk about persons couldn't we replace it with some less misleading term So what they think the, quote, persons of the Trinity are, are something like ways God lives or aspects of God, personae, personalities of God, something like that. But they're just something less than selves. And they really think there's one there. You know, this fits the Christian practice of always referring to God with singular personal pronouns. Right. And the fact that in the Old Testament, God has a personal name, Yahweh, which seems to assume that he's a single person. Uh, And this is probably a majority view with theologically educated Trinitarians in modern times. And one way you can detect it is if people, as soon as they say there are three persons in God, they'll say, oh, but I don't mean persons in the modern sense. What they're saying, I think, what they're trying to get at is that they're not selves. They're something less than selves. Okay. But some, especially in recent times, some Trinitarians have kind of rediscovered the new testament theme that there's an interpersonal relationship between the father and the son in the new testament this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased listen to him and jesus prays to him and trusts in him and so on so it looks like you have to say the father and son are two different selves i call this a three-self trinitarian view but um it's more typical to call it social trinitarianism there are these three selves and Most typically, like with Swinburne, all the divine attributes are attributed to each one of these selves. And, you know, indeed, it's part of the old small-c Catholic tradition that each one of these is fully divine or has the divine nature. And so, look, if you've got three different things and each one has the divine nature, that just seems the same thing as saying that there are three gods. So it's difficult for a social Trinitarian to make his view come out as truly monotheistic and not also tritheistic. Now, there's a subset of three self Trinitarians who believe in relative identity theory. They uh, think that the father and son can be the same being, but different selves or different persons. And this, on the face of it, is just what you would need to make sense of the Athanasian Creed. Although most philosophers think this is very problematic, this doctrine of sortal of relative identity. We probably won't talk much more about that, but you can see my encyclopedia article if you want to find out about that, what people like Peter van Inwagen and Michael Ray think about uh, the Trinity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I talk about the third big general sort of Trinity theories that I see on the current scene. Okay. But there's another major division. So there's three self people, there's one self people, and then there's people who just are not going to give any content to the doctrine. They're going to say the words, they're going to tell you there aren't any good analogies. And what they really think is there aren't any analogies. And there also isn't any kind of model that you can give for how to understand this language. At the bottom of it, you just kind of have this required language and they don't really have a view about what the persons are or what to make of the shared divine essence. There are differences about the divine essence as well, right? The credo claim is that the three are homo, that they, they share one usia, one essence. Generally, but not always, three self people take that essence to be a universal essence, divinity. A universal property is one that could be simultaneously completely had by different things, different bearers. Uh, and then others... Typically, the oneselfers think that the usia, the essence which is shared, is an individual property, uh, analogous to like Dale's instance of humanity. So they think the divinity is a particular property, uh, the kind of property which could only be had by one thing. So it looks like it forces the, the persons of the Trinity to all be one thing or aspects of one thing. So there are differences about how to understand the divine usia, There's even suggestion that by a couple of well-known Christian philosophers nowadays that it's analogous to matter. It plays a role similar to the role played by matter in material objects. So it's like stuff, but it's not literally matter. I talk about all these in my little book called What is the Trinity? Which is kind of a uh, beginner level sort of introduction to the subject where I don't even really talk very much about my own views. It's more kind of so you want to believe in the Trinity? Okay, here's a bunch of options. Let's look at the history where it comes from. Let's ask a few questions about it. It's that's kind of what that little book does. Um I got a chapter where I talk about different interpretations of what's meant by the persons in God and different another chapter about different interpretations of this claim that there's one essence there. Craig doesn't fit into either of the things I just said. Um I think he thinks that the one essence is not a property, but a being. Aristotle talks about first and second substance. And an example of a first substance is like me or you, like an individual human. An example of a second substance would be humanity, the property of being human or the essence that any human has to have. I think Craig thinks that the shared essence is actually a first substance. It's God. It's a a concrete individual. It's not a property at all, which is unusual, I think.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll get into it, but I agree with you on, on that take. I, that's the one I sort of opted for as well that makes the most sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, I think that gives the audience kind of a lay of the land. Like, what, what are some of the options here? Let, let's pretend, no, hey, I'm I'm up against a, an expert in this area. Let's pretend Trinity monotheism is totally refuted. There are some other options to look into, and you can see the the counters for and against them as well. Maybe one of them works. Or it doesn't. So yeah, um, I, I think with that said, let's get into the, the topic. Let's assess the Trinity monotheism model, because that's the one I, I'm persuaded by, and I think it could work. I think it makes sense of, of the raw biblical data, where we have these individuals, so they stand in I, thou relations to each other and that sort of thing, as um, Dale T. sort of hinted at. And also we have this clear biblical teaching that there's one God. So how do we make sense of that? So so I'll go into sort of my quick opening statement of what is this Trinity monotheism model. In the first place, so we we have three individuals or in later terminology, quote unquote, persons that are said to be divine, fully divine. And yet we have one thing that is God. So that's in in the creedal terms, again, that's one being uh, and three persons. and. The way Dr. William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland have tried to make sense of that is with their trinity monotheism model. So there, there is only one being, and that is equated to God, Yahweh, the, the full instantiation of the divine nature proper. So there is only one thing that is God, but the trinity as a whole is made up of the three persons. So neither God the Father isn't fully God in the like an instantiation of the divine nature neither is God the Son neither is the Holy Spirit but together they make up the Trinity and the Trinity proper is the only thing that you can truly say well that is God the way to make sense of this is they'll use the Kerberus analogy so look Kerberus is a three headed dog in Greek mythology and it's quote-unquote clearly uh, one being I know Dale will will take issue with that but According to William creating Craig that, they'll say, look, if there's one dog being there, but there's three individual centers of self-conscious, dog consciousness or dog persons, and you can name them. Rover, Bowser and Spike uh, is, is the names they give to it. And now to make it equivalent to the Trinity, let's just say we kill that so that it's now it's not a physical being, but it's an immaterial being. And that is what the trinity is you have these three sets of three persons uh, made up of sets of of faculties sufficient for personhood whatever those faculties are you know free will center of self-consciousness and that sort of thing whatever is essential to being a person and you have three of them all contained so to speak within this one soul that the bible calls yahweh or or gives this label of yahweh and that's really the model that i think Makes the most sense. Uh, it, it does seem to be logically coherent. Using using that analogy does help us to envision how this makes sense. And it's important to note that the the Trinity itself is not a person. So Yahweh proper is not a person, but it it's personal in light of the fact that the three individuals or persons that make it up are are persons and that sort of thing. So there is some sort of myriological arrangement a part-whole relationship whereby the persons can instantiate certain personal properties, you know, omniscience, um, omnipotence, and these sort of things. And sometimes the whole can have properties that none of the persons do, like, you know, they'll say the necessity or God's aseity, these are had by the whole. So yeah, I think in a nutshell, that's what the Trinity monotheism model is. William L. Craig and, and J.P. Moreland, there is an element where some people say that, well, the Son and, and that and the Holy Spirit are said to be begotten out of God the Father. So there's some kind of derivation relationship there. And William L. Craig and, and J.P. Moreland with their model, just like I tend to do to stay safe, they, they don't adjudicate on whether that is an aspect. They say no, that they don't think that's true because that would make the son or the holy spirit of lesser value than the than god the father because it's greater to be unbegotten than begotten so their model leaves that open whether you want to believe in some kind of derivation or or in how you make sense of that they don't really specify in their model though they personally don't believe in that um so yeah i think that pretty much covers the the trinity monotheism model hopefully anything I, i missed out there dale that you
1: think I should mention about it? Uh no, I mean that's that's basically the basics of it. We'll go into more depth about some of the things that he's saying. I, I think it actually is it's very clear on the surface, and then when you dig a little bit, it gets it gets really unclear about some things. So yeah. But, you know, but before we dig into what I think are problems, I mean, I think there's three kinds of problems with it. There's philosophical problems, there's historical problems, and there's Bible problems. Mm -hmm. And I think they're, they're really pretty bad problems when you pile them all up together. But I think before getting into those, I wanted to say some nice things about Bill Craig's approach to the Trinity, because I think he's right about some important things and, Just methodologically, I think there are some really laudable uh, features of his approach. And uh, what I've been told, I think by William Hasker, that um, in the Craig Moreland book, it was really Craig that wrote the Trinity part. Mm -hmm. So I'll just treat it like it was his. Uh, Moreland hasn't said anything about the Trinity since that book came out that I've ever seen. So I'm assuming we're really kind of dealing with one person's theory. So good things. Look, he doesn't just say, hey, this is a mystery, and no one's ever going to understand it, and we're just going to say these things. He says in one place that the strength of our approach is that it's not merely formulaic. It tries to actually tell you what this language means. Right, we're not supposed to just repeat the language like parrots. Supposedly, these are important truths that we actually have to believe, and so uninterpreted language just won't do. I think he's right about some things about the history, some important things. So he talks in the co-authored book about the uh, Lagos theologians of the two uh, of the second and third century so the one, late 100s and through the 200s and well into the, even into the 4th century he points out that all of these logos theorists were subordinationists that they had a logos uh, an eternal son well either eternal or at least older than the world they have a son that's lesser a lesser being than the one god which is the father in fact i think you could make the point a little bit stronger it's not just that they're kind of deficient trinitarians where you know the persons aren't equally great but there's a ranking of the person's first greatest second greatest third greatest it's not just they're deficient trinitarians i would say they're not trinitarians at all and the reason why they're not trinitarians at all is that they think that the one true god is the father And when you challenge them on monotheism, what they do is they emphasize the uniqueness of the father. They don't say, hey, all three of them together are one God. So we're talking about people like Tertullian and Origen, who we have a ton of writing from, and you can really kind of get your head fully around what they think. Lesser writers like Novation, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, uh, Eusebius, the church historian, yeah, they have a Lagos, which is a second god, a lesser god, another god, they say, different in number from the Father. And, well, that's just not Trinitarian at all. There's a greater god, which is the Father, and then there's a lesser god, the Son, and then there's a yet lesser god, which is the Spirit, usually. But he's right that, you know, subordinationism was a part of the central tradition. This was a stepping stone on the way to actually having Trinity theories in the 4th century. I think he's right that generation and procession have no basis in the Bible whatsoever. Like any verse that the patristic authors cited to support generation and procession is just wrong. It's just pure eisegesis. They're just reading later interests back into the biblical texts. I think he's right that being fully divine implies existing assay, that is existing independently of anything else. And so then if the father were to eternally generate the son, uh, the father would be more divine than the son because he would have a divine attribute that the son lacks. Asseity is an attribute that just in principle can't be given to another, right? You can't cause somebody else to to exist ase because then if that's an essential uh, feature, then they're existing because of your action. And finally, I think he's right that when scripture and tradition clash, you have to go with scripture, That's the Protestant way. And you can't just give the Trinity a pass just because of its prestige and because reformers like Luther and Calvin basically just kind of rolled things back to the era of Augustine. You have to be willing to even, you know, weigh the precious Nicene Creed against the Bible. And he does that. And in his view, Nicene Trinitarianism is incoherent. And it's incoherent because it says that the second and third person are caused eternally to exist by the first and yet the second and third person are each fully divine And he thinks that's that's not true that that's not even possible trinitarian tradition is is funny though because you can get away with almost anything as long as you say you're a trinitarian it absolutely demands lip service but hey revi you know revising central theses that will be tolerated. It's really the lip service kind of that functions as the important thing in the tradition. I did a podcast about this once called Trinity Club Orientation, and uh, it talks about this fact. You know, you can find theologians that say all kinds of wild stuff, but as long as they say, hey, I'm Trinitarian, it's all just kind of passed by. So, I mean, he's, he's very boldly revisionary, but by claiming that title, he's keeping himself within the mainstream. course not Trinitarians are going to agree with that
0: yeah that's something I I definitely agree with you on that these matters are especially if you believe like I do that, that it's an essential doctrine, at the very least, to admit Jesus' deity. Um, these things are important. A lot of times, Christians don't want to even. There, there's this worry that if they even try to look into it, they'll get a wrong opinion, and they'll, you know, they'll be damned as a result. So there is this fear, I guess, that some people have to even start considering it. And I sort of see that as a, a lack of faith. I mean, get in there, get trust in God to help you and to guide you into the truth, and and you know you might as well just say why not throw out the bible don't read the bible you might learn something that uh, come to a wrong conclusion or something like that but no we we need to roll up our sleeves and be willing to get in there and let's try our best to to figure out what the truth is on on this important and or even essential issue
1: yeah i completely agree with that you know the fear the fear element it's hard baked into the tradition The system has always depended on most people being afraid to really look into it. This required language was foisted on the church by the bishops assembled by a Roman emperor in the year 381. And when it was foisted on the church, they didn't know what it meant necessarily. And we're still trying to figure that out. There's always been an elite which will tell you, and this is true of Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox, There's always been an elite that tells you, hey, this is beyond you. This is something that you shouldn't meddle in. It's too dangerous. And now people like us, we get to talk about it at great length because I'm not sure exactly why. We're holier. We're more knowledgeable. Maybe both. But yeah, when people start looking into it themselves, that's when further Reformation breaks out. This has been happening over and over since the Reformation. Shortly after Luther, Catholic people who are looking into the Bible and trying to see, you know, how much of Catholic tradition was there, they started discovering, oh, wait, this triune God stuff isn't there. And so there's a long early modern history of this that I've spent hundreds of hours reading. But anyway, back to Craig, where were we?
0: Yeah, you listed the three things that you think are good about Craig's uh, model or attempt to make sense of the doctrine of the Trinity.
1: Yeah, he's actually thinking, you know, he's considering actual substantial issues. He's just not being impressed by its prestige, um, just kind of hand-waving appeals to mystery. He realizes that a lot of mystery appeals are just intellectual laziness, just refusal to look into it. And, um, you know, if it's an impenetrable mystery, that's convenient for a lot of people. That means I get to talk about it because I'm, I'm an expert on this and, and you just have to listen and not ask me hard questions. There's a genre of what I call cheerleading books about the Trinity. Fred Sanders is the perfect example of this. The Trinity's awesome. It's wonderful. It's whatever it is. Like you never kind of get clear whatever it is. It's the heart of the gospel. There's all this sloganeering about it and just puffery. And all this lament that it's not the center of everything Christians do, but then there's not like serious investigation of kind of what it means, why believe it, how is it implied by the Bible? It's actually very hard to get it out of the Bible, whereas I used to think it was easy. Now I think it's it's very hard. I gave a presentation of this about a year ago called uh, How to Prove that the Bible is Trinitarian. This is a podcast episode. It's a lot harder than just the Father's God, the Son's God, the Spirit's God, and there's only one God. That doesn't get you the creedal doctrine. What I just said is compatible with subordinationist Unitarian views and with oneness type theologies. To get a creedal Trinitarian view, you have to add in some things that are actually very hard to get from Scripture, such as that the father and son uh, share one, Usia. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I start to give some objections to Craig's Trinity theory that he calls Trinity monotheism. Let me go back to my point that Craig is heavily revisionary. He's really kind of going straight against Catholic traditions, in a sense. And Brian Leftow points this out in his discussion somewhere, or maybe it's Daniel Howard Snyder, I forget which, maybe both of them. The Catholic tradition is that the three persons of the Trinity share the divine essence. And what's meant there is that each of them is divine in the way that the one God is divine. So you could say fully divine is one way we paraphrase this nowadays. Craig's view is that none of the persons is divine in the way that the one God is divine. right? So it's not all of them, it's none of them. Now, <laughs> this prevents them from being unequal, right? but it's just not what the tradition says. He has the idea, well, look, the Trinity is the only God. Right, that's what a Trinitarian is supposed to say. But, you know, when you actually read the Cappadocian Fathers and Augustine and so on, no, they really think there are these three hypostases, three individuals, three things, three persons that have the divine essence. And that entails being a god. So it's it's uh, divine nature, divine essence in the sense where that entails being a god. It's just they think they're the same god. So Craig just has none of them being a god. They're all parts of God they're divine in the sense that they're parts of God he tends to downplay this talk of parts in the theory and he says you know he doesn't want to commit to any theory of parts that's fine but you know he's well aware that a lot of Trinitarians are in favor of divine simplicity and that rules out God having any parts of any kind or even multiple properties but yeah the idea that the persons are just parts of God they're divine in that in precisely that sense. I mean, for most of most of the history of Trinitarian theology, that would just be treated as like an obvious mistake, like they're not supposed to be one third of God they're all supposed to be God.
0: It raises uh the issue of partialism problem uh, possibly,
1: yeah, but there's a deeper problem regarding small c Catholic tradition and and Craig. Craig is the first person to ever hold this view. it's not. It's not conservative or traditional to say that the, you know, the correct theology of God came about in the late 20th century, that God, you know, God through his providence foisted this difficult language on the church. And then finally, thanks be to God, this guy figured it out in the late 20th century. Like that's kind of absurd, but if you can't point to earlier people who held this, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the opposite of traditional and conservative. It's bold. I'll give him points for that. It's aiming at truth. I'll give him points for that, but it's it's really a very poor fit, I think, with Catholic tradition. And it does make some basic moves to overcome some basic problems. So people interested in apologetics, I've seen, be interested in this. But like theologians and and analytic theologians, I've, I'm not aware of any that are sympathetic to Craig's theology. They just it's too idiosyncratic to them, and they see some of the problems with it.
0: Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, just before we move on to kind of the, you know, pressing these and, and let's probe a little bit deeper in, into the model. What what are some of these problems? And we can have back and forth on that. But before we get into the probing uh, section where I probe you and ask you some questions and then you can we'll spend the bulk of the show of you sort of leading the discussion by probing me, but is there anything else by way of an introductory general statement about the Trinity monotheism that you'd like to to mention? Or do you think in terms of introduction, you've covered it all?
1: Well, I mean, I've only covered problems having to do with history. There's still philosophy and Bible.
0: Yeah, sure. Go ahead.
1: Just take the Bible, um, and then we'll go more to philosophy. So it's a central and clear New Testament teaching that the one God is the Father, that the Father is the only true God. And being Trinitarian, this model is inconsistent with that. It makes the Father one of three parts of God, divine in the way a part of God can be divine. But that's not the same thing as being the one true God himself, which I would argue is presupposed in every New Testament book. Another bizarre thing about his view on the level of the Bible is, you know, the God of the Bible is a self. You got the whole Old Testament where God is speaking through prophets and you know there's no one like me i am he i'm the only god i'm in charge of history i'm able to predict the future because i'm provident over history right i me my he all singular personal pronouns there's a few anomalies which we can talk about if you want but you know People have visions of God and it's like a guy on a throne, right? The whole old Testament and new Testament impression of God is of a single person, a single self, right? It's our father in heaven and his God, isn't a person, right? His answer is, well, that's okay. Because God is personal. Uh, (laughs) What he means is that it's, it has parts, which are persons, right? But so does a soccer team. A soccer team is not a person. So does a family. A family is not a person. When Craig, you know, is thinking like an evangelical, he treats God as a person. God is always a he. The second Trinity theory comes up. Now God is a that which, you know, because he he knows you're not supposed to say that the Trinity is a he, because that would make a fourth he, a fourth person, and you, you're only supposed to have three, right? But as soon as as soon as we're out of the context of this, you know, he thinks about God like a Unitarian. You know, prayer is primarily, he says in his uh, Sunday school lectures, prayer is primarily to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Great, that's what I think. Where's the prayer to the Trinity? That's what you would expect if the Trinity is the one true God. But look, even just by definition, a God seems to be a self, right? A God is supposed to be this all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly morally good being, and those properties seem to entail being a self. But his God isn't one. His God is this this thing which somehow underlies or supports three selves, which are those things that I just said. So there's a real poor fit here with with the Bible and with just evangelical and wider Christian tradition. I mean, Here's a different way to put it. In the Bible, by definition, God is a God. This guy we call God, this character that we call God, is a God. He's, he's the only God. Or if you go to an earlier usage of God terms, like in the Old Testament, he's the greatest of the gods, of the Elohim. But anyway, God is by definition a God. He's the only God. This thing that Craig calls God is not a God, which is, just seems like it's wrong on the level of the Bible.
0: And just just so the audience knows, so I, I'm I'm letting uh, Dale, as, as the guest, uh, mention you know give you a sense of his view on the historical and Bible problems. But uh, I'm not I'm not responding to those directly because we're what we're doing is we're going to be focusing on the philosophical problems in this show uh, to discuss that. But I will put up links that are biblical debates between um, Dale Tuggy versus Michael L. Brown, and also your debate with Chris Date, I thought were really good. So. Yeah, if you're if you're interested in hearing uh, back and forth on the Bible and the, and a bit on the history issue, I'll, I'll send links to those debates for people.
1: Yeah, and there's a book version of the date debate now, too, which I think goes into a lot more depth about certain issues, including uh, early patristic history and uh, patristic theology.
0: What's the title of that book?
1: The title is, Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? A Debate. And it's Gosh. co-authored by me and Chris Date.
0: So go ahead, finish your your uh, introductory statement there.
1: Yeah, the, the whole thing bristles with philosophical problems. Um, these come out more when Craig gives a couple of brusque, short answers to Daniel Howard Snyder's critique in a couple of short later pieces that he wrote. One point is that Kerberos is totally unhelpful for his position. That analogy is just, it's just wrong. Uh, if there was a creature like that, we wouldn't think it was a three-headed dog. We would think it was three dogs with overlapping bodies. And you can see this just by considering the case, which Howard Snyder brings up, of conjoined twins. A couple years ago in the news, there were a lot of news stories about these sisters. And if you just saw them walking down the street, it kind of looks like one body with one head in the normal position and one head kind of shooting off to the side. And they were conjoined twins. But their bodies so strongly overlap that it almost looks like one normal body. Nobody calls that a two-headed girl. Everybody knows that the parents have two daughters. They're two different girls there. And it's just that their bodies overlap. Uh, If we could separate them, we would. If we could do it at low risk, but we can't in that case. So this is not an example of one living thing that has three, quote, centers of consciousness. It's an example of three dogs that are, unfortunately, uh, their bodies are stuck together, basically, and overlap one another. But that's totally unhelpful, right? You don't want to say the Trinity is three gods that somehow can't be separated from one another. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I talk about why I think Dr. Craig uses the phrase centers of consciousness in this theory. (laughs) his new talk about centers of consciousness is really opaque and unclear and i think i understand why he talks about centers of consciousness it's because he's ambivalent about whether the persons should count as substances or that is primary substances because he wants to say the only substance there is god he seems to treat them as selves and yet he says they they just somehow result from faculties which is very mysterious That's another point, right? So he says, you're one person because your soul only has one set of intellectual faculties, right? Mm -hmm. He says, well, God is three persons because God has three sets of faculties. If you have intellectual faculties, that makes the owner of the faculties a person. Okay, so if there's a soul which can think in three different ways, and so it has three sets of faculties... That's just one person that can think in three ways. It's overdetermined. Or right? even if you took away one faculty, the, the two remaining ones would still make it a person. So I don't see how you get three persons out of that. It's only one soul that is the owner. If that owner has those faculties, and that's an intelligent thing, that's a self, an agent, person, it's dark and obscure. He seems to think that the persons, whatever they are, just soup, kind of supervene on the faculties themselves, and so that's why each one of them doesn't make God a person, but they're these three persons in God, but that's a wholly obscure claim, I would say. Uh, another thing which maybe we'll save for later as we get more into the details after you push back is he divides the divine attributes up in a bizarre way between the Trinity and the, and the persons that's unprecedented that that just doesn't happen in christian tradition and the motivation for it is something that he doesn't explain but i think i kind of understand why he does it and howard snyder effectively pushes him on this so we'll have to talk about this division of divine attributes and this idea of property borrowing that his model requires
0: all right, cool. So I think that covers it in terms of the opening statements. it gives the the audience sort of a sense of okay, in general, what is this model, and in general, what are some of the philosophical issues that we'll be focusing on. Um, as well, additionally, uh, Dale mentioned some issues that could be in the Bible and in history as well that uh, won't be covered in this show unless Dale wants it to, wants me to to address that. But um, I think what we'll do is we'll go to the probing stage and i want to sort of just uh probe you a little bit just to get sort of a bearings on your positions that might be helpful for later on when we're assessing trinity monotheism so in the first place i just wanted to ask you so okay so number one you're you're a unitarian and a unitarian concept of beings or or people of course that's logically coherent by default we human beings are an an example of it we have proof that you know, you, you win. That's a coherent concept. But I just want to sort of get an idea from you as to what exactly that might entail. So you mentioned there are two forms of, uh, sub, two types of substances. Um, did, did you want to just maybe, what, what is the difference again uh, for the audience between primary and a secondary substance?
1: This is just standard lingo that goes back to Aristotle. A first substance or primary usia is supposed to be an individual thing, like a bearer of properties that last through time. So it's a concrete object, such as a person or a tree, maybe a planet. A second substance or second usia is supposed to be like an essence. The features which define a certain type of thing, philosophers call this a natural kind nowadays. You know, in, in old philosophy, they would say that the essence of humanity is rational animal. That seems a little too general, but it's whatever features it is that makes something an example of a human being. So it's all the properties which are necessary and sufficient for being a human. And so theology has always talked about the divine essence in this way. So, for instance, most Christians think it's essential to God to be all-knowing and all-powerful and perfectly good. And so you couldn't be God and not have those features. It's part of what it is to be God. It's, it's entailed by divinity.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And, um, uh, and, and, substance is, is equated to being, uh, just so the audience could know.
1: Uh, yeah. Being can mean either one of those. I mean, being can also mean something like matter. So, I mean, being is just a vague term as, as is substance or essence.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Um, so what in your view then, what it, what does it mean to be a person?
1: Again, I think this is a concept that's built into all human beings. That we all understand ourselves to be persons and we understand others to be persons or selves. And also if you believe in, in, in any God, you think God is a self. So it's a subject of consciousness, something that has a first person point of view, something that can intentionally act. So it can act for a reason. So it has to have some degree of intelligence and will. And uh, I think to be a full-blown person, you have to be capable of entering into interpersonal relationships where you, you know, communicate with others, trust in others, join together in common projects with others. The concept of a self, yeah, any human is supposed to be a self. Any god is, is supposed to be a self. Other mythological creatures like fairies and leprechauns and nagas and all kinds of things, they're thought of as selves, right? You could talk to them you could reason with them you could negotiate with them anything that you can do that with is a self so it's it's basically the concept of an intelligent agent
0: gotcha so on your view because i know it's relevant to uh, an objection you raised you know where and you kind of hinted at it in this thing where you're saying like well if a person is just a set of faculties well faculties don't know things they're not a center of self-consciousness or that. Mm-hmm. So on your view, is it the substance, the soul itself, that it, that's that's the knower, that's the thing that's knowing and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, the a faculty, that concept is just the concept of a general power, like a general set of capabilities. You know, I have the faculty of locomotion, I have the faculty of speaking English, I have the faculty of, of thinking about philosophy. So faculty is just like a general power. And it, yeah, it's, you're right. It's not the faculty that acts. It's the thing with the faculty that acts. What you're going to say about that depends on your, your philosophical anthropology. And honestly, I don't think Christians have to take one view. Most Christians are dualists, and they would say that it's either the soul, which is the subject of consciousness, or it's the soul plus the body together. That's one unit that's the subject of consciousness and then some christians are physicalists about humans and they think that just the living organism or the brain or some physical object which is you know where i am they think that's the thinker right but none of them think that it's the faculty that you know enters into interpersonal relationships or intelligently acts or thinks the, the faculty is the power that enables you to do various things a person might think this when first encountering craig's view but he doesn't think that the persons are faculties. Mm -hmm. He thinks that somehow necessarily each person exists because of this faculty, which is again, a very mysterious claim, I think, because normally we think faculty of having a mind would be part of what makes the owner of that faculty a person. That's not what he's saying. Okay. So he denies that this soul, which is God is a person, which again is, is weird, right? Most believers in souls, Souls by definitions are persons. At least that's the classical kind of cartesian view and arguably platonic dualism as well. But that's not what he thinks cuz he knows you're not supposed to say that the triune god is a person.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You kind of got where I I was sort of question where I'm sort of probing if if it's necessarily the case that a, a person is equated to a, to a substance and that sort of thing. And yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll get into that. Um
1: I mean, I think it is because I mean, a person is the sort of thing which lasts one and the same throughout time. A person is the sort of thing which has various features, and that's that's just what a substance is in metaphysics, like a first substance, an individual, an individual entity, a concrete entity. So yeah, I think a self is, by definition, a substance. that's part of the concept. I don't know if Craig thinks they're substances or not. I, I think he chooses this dark term center of consciousness precisely because it's vague. It kind of suggests that it's a a person and a substance, but then maybe it's something less. Next week, the rest of my conversation with Dale Glover about William Lane Craig's Trinity theory that he calls Trinity Monotheism. In part two, we start with his philosophical argument that it's impossible for there to only be one divine person. This week's thinking music has been the track Blue Sky Blues by Kara Square. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track.
0: online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.